Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. In this podcast, you'll hear detailed and relatively unbiased information about Israeli politics and current events. It's been an exciting week in Middle Eastern news and the news related to Israeli politics and the forthcoming election. So I'm going to dive right in. Let's talk about the international news first. The biggest news in international affairs for the week, of course, is the bombing of Iran by the United States in response to an attack on U.S. forces in Erbil in Iraq. Also, uh, Israel claims that there was an explosion on an Israeli-owned vessel uh, linked to Iran, and Israel itself fired at uh, Iranian targets in Syria as well. So that's part of the the big news. Iran looms large in the news, as always. Uh, I'm going to be discussing Iran at great length shortly in the main meat and potatoes of the podcast episode. So I will come to that shortly and we'll move on with the other news until I decide to, to dive into that in greater detail. In a turn that's not all that unexpected, the Abraham Accords, which were backed by $3 billion of federal money, U.S. Uh, public money, uh, may be bankrupt soon. The current administration does not seem to be eager to fund the $3 billion. The head of the program has quit, and its future is uncertain. We were all somewhat concerned that the incoming administration would not be as interested in this peace deal as the outgoing administration was. Uh, obviously, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain will continue to be at peace with Israel as they within the pact that they made. They will still be eligible for weapons deals with higher tech weaponry and such uh, to the extent that they're able to afford it uh, if the U.S. government doesn't put money forward of its own. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is going to lead to a, a downgrade in the alliance. The, the full initiative, the full energy of the alliance may not be there because the current administration uh, doesn't want to give any victories to the prior administration. Well, that's an unfortunate thing. However, it is a really huge step that these two countries came out of their enmity uh, with Israel and decided to form an alliance in any case. And in the future, this is going to have a massive and significant impact nonetheless. Uh, for one thing, uh, Iran now knows that an attack on Bahrain, uh, which they claim is their own territory, by the way, just a note, uh, or the United Arab Emirates would necessarily involve retaliation from Israel, which uh, regards itself now as an ally of those two countries. The United States State Department also released a statement this week saying they are interested in an Israeli-Saudi pact, if one can be forged, but concerned about Saudi Arabia not sharing our values. In order for Saudi Arabia to join such a pact, it's going to have to embrace I want to say I'm going to call more Western values, as I've discussed before, in terms of uh, what kinds of weapons sales might be available in the future, how they're going to behave as an ally, what their rules of engagement are going to be when they enter into combat, and how our weapons might be used in the Middle East by the Saudis. Uh, and also, obviously, Israel will prefer to have an alliance with a country that is uh, moral and free and people are able to express their their views and practice their religions without persecution. Part of the Abraham Accords, as I described before in the supplement, is that the, in the these countries are not just making peace with Israel, they are also embracing religious freedom. Uh, 
and a good deal of why it's called the Abraham Accords was part of a uh, an intention to signal to everyone that this isn't just peace between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain, but part of a larger desire in the Middle East to make peace between the three major religions that look to uh, Abraham or Avraham, as we say, Ibrahim in Arabic, uh, this this father character who is the father of those three traditions. Uh, if peace could be achieved between Judaism, Christianity, Islam, everyone kind of at once, then the Middle East will have a pathway to a lasting peace that won't just break down the next time one of some fanatic from one of those religions decides that they want to take over the whole place. So this is uh, this is part of the, the effort to bring a lasting, stable peace between these religions, between these countries. Obviously, if Saudi Arabia wants to be a part of that, they are welcome to join, but we're going to need to see some commitment from them to uh, come up to Western values. It's not clear how uh, that's going to be done, but in any case, uh, a statement has been made. There's talk of it. Who knows what could happen in the future? And we will we will find out as the fullness of uh, history unfolds. Regarding news internal to Israel, a major decision of the Israeli Supreme Court has come down, recognizing the conversion process of two religious Jewish religious movements in the United States. It sounds complicated. It is. So I'm going to explain it briefly. But the uh, the Judaism, the, the stream of Judaism, if you will, that that operates in Israel is the Haredi or ultra orthodox Judaism, uh, people who wear black hats and, and have locks, black coats, this kind of thing. Uh, on the one hand, that's the that's the Ashkenazic Haredi, Haredim, uh, the Sephardic Haredim, a uh, similar type of thing. The men wear uh, black kippah or, or yarmulke on their head, uh, white shirts, black pants. And so they have a tendency to have a little bit of a uniform. In any case, uh, that, that form of orthodoxy is the Judaism that in, in terms of what is considered religious in Israel prevails. There's also the National Religious Movement, which is uh, not as high-practicing, not as stringent in that sense, more uh, concerned with Judaism as a national identity. But the forms of Judaism that are popular in the United States, such as modern Orthodox, conservative, and reform, that are very egalitarian, that is, uh, women are included uh, and given uh, greater participation, they're more progressive, they're more forward-looking, uh, some of these movements, reform in particular, uh, and conservatism to a lesser extent, but only slightly, embrace uh, feminist, feminist ideals, and uh, they support uh, freedom and acceptance for homosexuals and such. Uh, these movements are not as stringent in terms of Jewish practice. Uh, there's an old joke that uh, you should schlep on down to the reform shul so you can have cocktails, you know, little those little uh, shrimps with your uh, own egg, with your, your Shabbat uh, dinner or uh, Shabbat treat, if you will, uh, because they're not stringent about dietary laws or things like that. Uh, but, I mean, they are tied to Judaism in some way, and that uh, we appreciate. So if you think of Judaism in the big tent sense, obviously those who are in that those religious streams are included in the movement of Judaism, included uh, in the big tent. However, where this breaks down, especially with the Orthodox, who, of course, believe everyone should be as stringent as they, is when we come to the issue of conversion. Uh, when the Orthodox bring in new people to the nation of Israel, uh, it's more like a, a citizenship process as well as a, a demonstration of faith. 
uh, as Herman Wouk described, uh, Judaism is not quite a nation and not quite a religion, but a little bit of both in, in different areas. So uh, when you start to bring new people in, the Orthodox are very particular about this, and they have a great difficulty bringing people in. They will often disqualify, Israeli authorities will often disqualify the converts of rabbis within Israel and without uh, Orthodox rabbis around the world because they don't feel that those rabbis are stringent enough. And they'll also null, uh, annul weddings and marriages performed by those rabbis. And this gets, this gets somewhat ridiculous, but that within the, relig- within the Orthodox religious community, they have authority there. But they have no authority over the Reform, Conservative, and Modern Orthodox movements, which operate independently as independent streams to the Orthodox movement. And as a result, what you get when you convert to Judaism through one of those movements whose requirements for conversion to Judaism are not as stringent is that the Orthodox don't want to recognize them. Now, they're happy to accept that a person who is born to a a Jewish mother or born in a Jewish family is a Jew. So they will say, you know, those Jews who go to reform or conservative uh, whose parents were Jewish and they uh, show up at an Orthodox yeshiva uh, religious school, let's say, they'll be taken, hey, hey, you're Jewish, welcome. Uh, but if they came to Judaism by conversion through those movements, they will not be accepted as Jews, and they'll be treated like outsiders. For the purposes of the law of return to Israel, all Jews, including foreign converts, are supposed to be allowed to return to Israel and live in Israel as Jews. Unfortunately, a lot of people, both Orthodox and uh, non-Orthodox Jews, who live in Israel, live in sort of a, from a religious point of view, a second-class status. I've described the problem with the Russian Jews, for example, trying to integrate into Israel because Russians regard a person's ethnicity by their father, not by their mother, and Orthodox authorities regard uh, a person as Jewish by their mother, not by their father. This has created a problem where there are a lot of Russian Jews who are too Jewish to be Russian, and uh, they are too Russian to be Jewish, if you will, <laughs> according to Jewish laws. They get kind of caught in, in between and end up having to undergo conversions. And then if you choose to be converted by the wrong rabbi, you can, you know, and this creates a problem. But you can't marry a Jew in Israel when you're not Jewish by Orthodox standards, right? You can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. So there are a number of activities uh, that you cannot do. Uh, if your Judaism is not recognized. And so the high court has at the very least required that uh, Jews who are Jews by choice, who have given the Jewish people the greatest honor we could ever have, which is that people who have a choice to live any way in the world would choose to become one of us and join themselves to the nation. Uh, Those people uh, should be welcomed and should be celebrated and given uh, uh, fair and equal treatment, let's say. And the high court has embraced that to a greater degree. Now, obviously, the Orthodox can still try to exclude these converts from different activities, but at least this is a step in the right direction. Marriage and conversion are two big, uh, along with immigration that relates to the two, are big issues in Israel uh, on the Jewish question. And in that regard, this is going to come up from time to time, and I I wanted to give some background on it. Uh, Again, the high court, of course, is the secular court. This is the Supreme Court of Israel has has decided in favor of the lower form, practicing forms of Judaism, which are predominant in the United States. If, if you find a synagogue in the U.S., you're much more likely 
to um, to see one that is modern Orthodox, conservative, or reform. But if you go to Israel, you're much more likely to see something that is one form or another of Haredi or Hasidic uh, synagogue of, among the Ashkenazim and some kind of Orthodox Sephardic synagogue among the, the Middle Eastern Jews who live in Israel. All right. Well, there's been a lot of exciting news with Iran, so I'm going to take a little bit of time. I've been very focused on the elections, but I want to take a little bit of time to offer some background on the conflict with Iran and discuss events with Iran going forward and looking back just a little bit so we kind of understand where we are at this particular point. And I'll be talking about it a lot, it seems, over the course of the coming years because Iran just keeps <laughs> keeps being the the main antagonist in this story, right? Uh, as much as Israel is our protagonist and we want to spend a lot of time talking about what's going on in Israel, there's going to be a lot of uh, things that, that relate to Iran. So uh, we, we saw a lot of tit-for-tat this week. Uh, Iranian forces uh, attacked or Iranian-backed militias, which is you know essentially the same thing as Iran, right? We, we know that. Uh, attacked U.S. forces in Erbil, which is the in the Kurdish region in Iraq. And as a result, the U.S. government responded with strikes in Syria. There's also an explosion on an Israeli ship in the Gulf of Oman near the near Iran, out there in the sea near the Iranians, where uh, that was uh, Israel chose to blame Iran for that. And Israel made some strikes in Syria as well. So uh, there's been a lot of tit for tat and back and forth with Iran on that. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is if you'll forgive the term, being a little bit schizophrenic or uh, bipolar, maybe, might be a better term. I don't know, because we're getting pretty pathological here about the negotiations toward Iran nuclear deal. On the one hand, the Biden administration seems very eager to return to the Obama era nuclear deal with Iran. This this agreement that supposedly Iran would... uh, would allow inspections of their nuclear facilities, refuse to develop a weapon for 10 years, and uh, as a result, the U.S. would lift sanctions and we would all live happily for the next 10 years. That, of course, uh, everyone at the time, including Bibi Netanyahu, warned everyone, uh, warned us. The fact is, this agreement has no teeth. There, there are no, uh, There's nothing that really triggers the sanctions returning to Iran. The inspections are a joke because uh, the Iranians, of course, don't allow international inspectors into every facility, as we've seen. And it had nothing to do, uh, addressed not in any way, Iran's development of ballistic missiles. Iran has been developing missiles of greater and greater range that can reach into Europe now. And uh, missiles that can reach into Europe, while they're also developing nuclear weapons, sounds a lot like a country that has a... Um, let's just say, an intention of holding America's closest allies, Israel and Europe, hostage to their, and not to mention the oil fields, a significant amount of the Earth's uh, oil supply, the the global oil supply, uh, hostage to their nuclear arsenal one day. Uh, I'll get more into Iran's nuclear aspirations shortly. So the Biden administration says they really want to go in. uh, They really seem to be frustrated that negotiations aren't headed that way, that they haven't been able to find some avenue to get back to the negotiating table. Uh, On the other hand, the Iranians are sitting there posturing as usual. They're throwing their weight around saying, hey, we're we're not going to negotiate if you don't negotiate before such and such a deadline. And if you... Uh, it will only come back to the table if there are preconditions, like you lift certain sanctions or you pay us a certain amount of money. Uh, 
So the Iranians are, are engaged in the usual sort of chess match uh, strategy that, that they always play. And I've said it before, and I'll have to explain a little bit more. It's always a game of chess with the Iranians. It's never something that's just straightforward. It's usually uh, some degree of strategy or uh, thought behind each move so that it, you know, a pawn will move here and there'll be a little thing here. But you know that there's a, a rook or a bishop coming from behind or that the queen is going to move over here. And that if you're not careful, you'll end up in a checkmate because they're always thinking a few moves ahead. They're, they rarely make a move where they don't have some way to back out of it. Right. So, of course, we have uh, Iran going around the Middle East with all of these proxies, the various uh, tendrils of the Hezbollah movement. And the Hezbollah movement is tied to the Iranian Revolution. They have uh, chapters or, or army units, really, as paramilitary forces, let's just say, in Lebanon, in Iraq, and other countries. Uh, they have a, a broad international Hezbollah movement uh, that exists even here in the U.S. that does uh, fundraising mostly and organizing, uh, gathering uh, financial resources and equipment and whatever they can get a hold of to go to the Middle East to cause trouble. And uh, Iran is always trying to gain some leverage over other governments, trying to take over governments. We saw with the Arab Spring when uh, the Muslim Brotherhood took over Egypt that Iran was right there to, to lend a hand to the Egyptian government. And, hey, you know, you're Islamists and we're Islamists. Let's be friends and let's, uh, let's destroy the great enemies of, of our movement. Well, we saw how that turned out. Thankfully, the Egyptian military got back in charge there. But in any case, uh, Iran is always shrewd like this. They're always thinking things through. And so if they, if they make a misstep or a miscalculation, they have some deniability to pull back, right? Because if uh, Hezbollah forces in Iraq, let's just say, fire at uh, U.S. forces, it's not really Iran doing it, right? It's, it's some other group. We're, we're, not, we're not responsible. It's these other guys, you know, uh, yeah, they take order from Iran. Oh, well, I mean, you know, we give them arms and supplies, but no, they act completely independently of us. We're, we're led to believe this kind of thing. And so you create this situation where, of course, when some militia bombs uh, U.S. forces in Erbil, we have to figure out how to respond to Iran carefully. Now, we saw that uh, they played this game quite a bit during the Trump administration early on, and Donald Trump chose to assassinate their top terror leader, uh, Soleimani, and once he was killed, that really sent a message to the uh, Iranian regime, and they definitely toned down their activities for the remainder of the Trump administration. With Donald Trump out of office now, they're up to a, their old tricks. And it's not just that there's a new administration, because they always tend to start their chess match every time there's a new administration in town, uh, but they sense that this administration is bipolar, schizophrenic, what? So on the one hand, we have an administration that says that uh, they want to negotiate with Iran and, and you know, peace and flowers, and we're going to get back to the Iran deal. And uh, they seem to be dedicated to doing that kind of at any cost. On the other hand, they're bombing the snot out of Iranian-backed forces in Syria and destroying valuable targets there. Uh, that sounds more like you know, doing the bidding of the military industrial complex that really wants to escalate the war in Syria and uh, not so much concerning yourselves with American national interests. Now, why, why is Iran such a threat? 
right? When when we talk about the threats to Israel, right? What's going on here? We we talk about uh, there there are different terror groups you're going to hear about. I've talked about Fatah, the uh, the Palestinian Sunni Palestinian movement that is dedicated, uh, supported by the Arabs and dedicated to Israel's destruction, and Hamas, which while it is a Sunni religious organization, is backed by Iran. Uh, but why is it that that even though the Saudis and uh, other Arabs have been at enmity with Israel, at odds with Israel. Why is Iran the great threat now? And that requires going back into Iranian history just a little bit. Uh, out of the Second World War came an Iran that had sided with the Allies, was ruled by the Shah of Iran. And this was a, uh, a country that was oil-producing and poor and backward. I don't mean backward in the sense that there's some kind of moral judgment against them. But look, we're in we're in a world where we, we think of uh, Western uh, powers being very economically developed and people are very wealthy. And we have Iran where it's mostly pastoral. You have a lot of uh, a lot of people engaged in agriculture and uh, ranching and, and herding and that kind of thing in, in very primitive sense and not as much urbanization and not as developed an economy. Well, the Shah saw this, and he decided he was going to bring the country forward. And so he began to uh, expand education, invested in higher education. Uh, There was greater urbanization. There was more industry brought into Iran. Iran began to modernize at a rapid rate Uh, in the the 1950s and 60s, especially in the 60s. Iran became a much more modern country, a, a country that at least theoretically, is Islamic, Shiite Islamic, there were bikinis worn by women. Uh, women were going to school. Women were in colleges and universities. Women were in the workforce. Women were dressing in modern Western ways. Uh, young men shaved their beards off and were also being modern and Western. And uh, during this time, uh, there's the, the infamous letter written to the Shah of Iran by King Fahd of the Saudis. And he kind of summed up almost prophetically, the situation in Iran in the 70s, as he said to the Shah, you know, uh, don't forget that you are a Muslim country. He said to him, you know, you on the one hand, yes, you've, you've modernized things and there are bikinis and education, all that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, you have to remember that Iran is a Muslim country, that a majority of its people uh, practice Islam and they're going to want Islamic values. Right. And that was something of a warning to the Shah, a a warning. Obviously, the Shah did not heed. And in 1979, things kind of boiled over and a group of Islamists or Islamofascists, better term, especially for this group, uh, hijacked the country. There was a a revolution of uh, young people who were against the Shah and uh, Islamists and those who supported their agenda. They overthrew the government. They took hostages at the U.S. embassy. And then they started sweeping through the streets and shooting randomly people who had nothing to do with anything, but also theoretically uh, cleansing the country of the people who supported the Shah. Uh, Funny thing, a lot of those people tended to be from Iran's uh, multitude of religious minorities. Iran was uh, a tolerant, peaceful uh, country with great pluralism. There were a lot of Jews, Zoroastrians, Christians of various stripes. There is also a minority of Sunni, and some of them are ethnically Arab Muslims in Iran, most of them in the south near uh, the Gulf. And this is another minority group in Iran. And these minority groups began to see significant persecution. And suddenly uh, the country 
was no longer a safe place for these minorities. Large numbers of Jews, Christians, and Zoroastrians were forced to flee Iran. Anyone connected to the Shah had to flee for their lives. And uh, obviously the, the embassy crisis with the hostages was a major scandal for the United States. Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, famously could not resolve and uh, botched a rescue effort. And uh, Ronald Reagan, when he was uh, elected president, the Iranians announced that they'd be sending the hostages back before he even took the oath of office. Uh, something about the uh, the Iranian militants. They, they may be fanatical militants, but they're not completely insane. Again, chess moves, right? They understood that Ronald Reagan was not Jimmy Carter and that if they didn't negotiate the release of the hostages, he would be coming for them. So this is another example of the chess game with the Iranians. Uh, since then, uh, obviously, they ended up in a war with Iraq. It was a very nasty, knockdown, drag-out war. But um, they emerged from that uh, in the, to the 90s, wanting to uh, advance the, the greater Islamic agenda. And that agenda is very focused on Israel. They, they definitely want to see Israel destroyed, ergo their willingness to support all of these uh, various and sundry um, paramilitary groups or, or proxies for Iran that uh, are attacking Israel and they're generally seen as being on the same side with any group that's uh, against Israel, uh, but not with uh, Sunni militant groups like Islamic State because those groups want to kill uh, Shiites and, and disempower, disenfranchise the Shiite movement just as much as they want to destroy Israel. So um, there was a, a sort of a, I want to say a temporary suspension of hostility to a certain extent between Iran and various Sunni groups in Syria, where Iran backed the Assad government against Islamic State because Islamic State was a greater threat than uh, Israel or other uh, forces at the time. So this is, this is the challenge. The Iranian people are a wonderful people. Uh, they have a pretty advanced culture. They're very intelligent. They're very scientific. They're very industrious. They have a long history. If you go and look the history of Persia, it doesn't take you long to figure out, oh, wow, you know, these people were pretty advanced as a civilization. Their knowledge, uh, translated into Arabic, of course, uh, was important uh, amount. Uh, it was important part of the cultural exchange that took place when uh, the Crusades happened and Westerners finally got their hands on these Arabic translations of Persian works and Persian medical books, along with translations of various Greek texts and Roman texts that uh, gave uh, gave rise this this information, this body of, of Arabic translated so uh, in, intelligent thought, <laughs> intellectualism, let's just say, all of these works brought were brought back to Italy, Spain, and France as part of the uh, at the end of the Crusades into the to England as well. And this is what fueled, uh, the pre-Renaissance, right? It helped to uh, encourage thought and education and uh, helped give Western society uh, a leg up. Now, we don't owe everything to the Persians, to the, but it, it shows you, again, how important their role in the world as a source of knowledge and intelligence really is. Where we are today really describes uh, the, the reality of uh, what the Iranian people are capable of and really how they differ from others who uh, live in the region, especially from the Arab culture. A Arab friend of mine in a discussion, we were talking about the differences between the two, and he chose to describe it this way. He said, when Arabs hate Israel, they form terror groups, they, form, they send in armies, they attack uh, and attack and attack. 
you said, when Persians, when Iranians uh, decide that they hate Israel, they start developing a nuclear weapon. And uh, to him, this defined the difference between the two groups. The Iranians are being more scientific and industrious, going to look for a technological edge that will empower them. And of course, as we know, uh, since 1945, no nation that has come into possession of nuclear weapons has ever gone to direct war or confrontation with any other nation that has that possesses nuclear weapons. All of the wars and conflicts have either been indirect conflicts, uh, for example, Cold War uh, struggles, or have been regional conflicts that have not directly related to the Cold War or have been about other issues, but never between nuclear powers. Uh, there is uh, uncertainty in the world as to whether or not Israel possesses nuclear weapons, and I am not going to ring in on that question, but the Iranians certainly feel that if they come into uh, possession of nuclear weapons and missiles that can carry them as far as Europe, that uh, the United States will not be able to attack them, that it will stabilize their regime, and that it will protect them and their interests in the future, and certainly give them the ability to uh, destroy Israel. The, the problem here being that is Iran's government is led by these religious clerics, these fanatics who believe that there's a 12th imam coming and that by destroying Israel, they can bring on an ap apocalyptic age. So to what extent do they believe their own uh, uh, apocalyptic uh, beliefs? To what extent are they looking for apotheosis in and... Um, a change in the way the world works, that they might be willing to fire a missile at Israel, expecting that that's going to bring God down to kill off the Jews and, and make them the masters of the world. Uh, and to what extent are they going to be rational and sensible like we are, it, it, we'd want to be, and think through the think things through strategically. And they've always managed to balance the two, but they do have a fanatical rage against Israel and a belief that its destruction will bring on their magical... Uh, age, if you will, and on the one hand, and on the other hand, they are very shrewd and have been very uh, clever in the way that they have approached their conflict with Israel. And this is among the reasons that makes Iran the most dangerous enemy Israel has had to face. Uh, at this point, Iran is also the main enemy. Uh, the Arabs finance some groups that are hostile to Israel, but for the most part, uh, the Arab governments in, in recent years have been pushing those groups like Fatah and the Palestinians to reach some kind of peace accord. Uh, it's over. Let it go. And we'll, we'll deal with this another time. And uh, Iran is the, the greater threat to them as well. And so uh, it, most of the violence, whether it's Hamas, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, various Hezbollah groups around the Middle East, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, these groups are financed by Iran. Iran is the main antagonist who is bringing instability and war to the Middle East. And the second, uh, substantially smaller antagonist, of course, are groups like Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, uh, these, these Sunni militant groups that are, are hostile to Sunni Arab regimes and uh, Shiite regimes like Iran. All right, I have just enough time for a quick poll. We have another poll out. It's uh, This one was taken on February 25th, so fairly recently, and it relates to... Uh, the situation little less than a month out from the election. Uh, as I've mentioned, with multi-party proportional systems, uh, polls give you a pretty accurate bead on what people are thinking at the time they're taken. Again, we're talking about ballpark figures, uh, which parties are polling 30-ish, which parties are polling 10-ish, that kind of thing. Uh, and so it gives us a good snapshot. Also, Israeli voters tend to be pretty 
uh, eager to express their opinions and not very shy about it. So we do tend to get pretty decent polls. And while these are far from the final numbers, there's still a good uh, month left of campaigning. We're going to see probably numbers close to this. Uh, there's always that uh, possibility of a last-minute shift. This poll is taken by Haaretz. Haaretz is a left-wing news source, uh, translates to The Globe or The World. And they have uh, a particular a particular approach to polling. Their polls are not bad, <laughs> I just want to say, but they do have a tendency to give the left-leaning parties one or two more points than other polls do, and the right-leaning parties one or two less seats than, than the other. So a little bit. But uh, in this case, it's pretty close to what we've seen before, so I'm not... Uh, not too worried about it. So let's go ahead and look at the poll and see what we have here. All right, according to the Haaretz poll, Likud is at uh, what they're calling 28.5, so 28 to 29 seats. Yeshatid, that's uh, Yair Lapid's populist center-left party, at 18. Strong second place for him. New Hope, that's uh, Gidon Sa'ar's main, the main challenger to BB at the moment. Uh, his party is polling at 13.5, which means maybe 13 seats, maybe 14 seats. Again, kind of 13, 14-ish. Uh, Yamina, the party led by Naftali Bennett, uh, that party is at 11.5. So again, 11 seats, 12 seats about joint list, which is the main body of Arab parties that usually don't participate in the political system, is at 9. Shas, uh, the Sephardic Orthodox religious party, is at 8. Yisrael Batenu, the main, uh, used to be kind of the Russian uh, right-wing party, but it's led by Avigdor Lieberman, kind of the secular right party, if you will, is at 7.5, so maybe seven seats, maybe eight for Yisrael Batenu. United Torah Judaism, the other ultra-Orthodox Haredi party, is at seven. Uh, Labor is at six. The Religious Zionism, uh, it's the very far-right parties, are at 4.5, so maybe four seats, maybe five. Uh, Meretz, the far-left protest party, is at 4.5, so maybe four seats, maybe five. Uh, Kahol Lavan, uh, blue and white, which is uh, Benny Gantz party, is at 3.5, so maybe 3.5, maybe four. But that's right there at the uh, at the threshold, at 3.25. If you don't earn at least three and a quarter percent, you don't get seats in the in the Knesset. And Ra'am, the uh, Arab nationalist party that is not uh, running with joint list, is below the threshold in this poll. So what we're getting from this poll, I'm, I'm talking about Bibi's natural partners. Uh, Likud, which is Bibi Netanyahu's party, is still up at 28, 29, 30-ish seats, kind of in that ballpark there, depending on turnout and how the final uh, election numbers come out. And uh, his natural allies, uh, Shas, United Torah Judaism, and the religious Zionism parties, uh, they're running about 20 seats, maybe 21, maybe 22 among all of them, but about 20. So all told, BB is really looking at around 50 seats, maybe 49, maybe 52, but he's kind of in that ballpark. Those are his natural coalition partners, people who are looking to form a coalition with just him. That said, uh, the opposing coalition would be led either by uh, Yair Lapid or by Gideon Saar uh, is not looking, um, you know, their, their, their numbers are a little bit higher than that, but they're, they're still, that's, that's a complicated situation. I don't want to say it's not looking good for them, but it, it is and it isn't. Uh, on the one hand, they're running more like 54 seats, 
to 56, maybe 55, somewhere in that neighborhood, a little bit higher than that. Uh, but we're also talking about some pretty disparate uh, political interests here. And again, Guidon Saar is putting himself out there as the main uh, competitor to Bibi Netanyahu, as somebody who's on the right, but he's coming down in third place behind Yair Lapid. And Yair Lapid, the populist center-left candidate, who's really the, the main center-left prime minister candidate, uh, he's in second place. So you're going to form a coalition that's going to have to require some kind of a rotation between the two. You're not going to have, uh, I mean, Yair Lapid is not going to give up his uh, presence there, his power, uh, being the leading party in any kind of coalition. And uh, when you look at some of the other parties uh, that are going to be in there, you're going to have Meretz, a far-left party, with Yisrael Batenu, which is a, cent- a nationalist right-wing party, right? So that would be a fairly uncomfortable coalition. Now, for the, the more astute may have noticed that in talking about coalitions, I haven't spent any time on Yamina, and that's where I'm going right now. So, yes, Likud's natural allies, Bibi's natural allies for office, have about 50 seats. Then there's Naftali Bennett. Now, Naftali Bennett has criticized Bibi in the past, but he has also kind of kept the mum out there on whether he might join a government or not. He's polling at about 11.5 in this poll, so 11, 12 seats, uh, very similar to the other polls we've seen uh, that I've talked about. They've all been right in the same ballpark uh, so nothing radical about this poll. Uh, again, you know, one seat this way, one seat that way doesn't make a great deal of difference. But looking at this number, uh, this set of numbers here, uh, he's in a position to be kingmaker. He could seal the deal with Gideon Sa'ar and uh, and Yair Lapid to end Bibi Netanyahu's time as prime minister by joining with them and giving them a majority of the Knesset. Or he could go make amends with Bibi Netanyahu and form a government with him, right? His interests would more naturally align with Netanyahu and the right than with the center-left, for sure. So he'd he'd be more comfortable and more natural, and a coalition more likely to survive and go a full term. Uh, Bibi has already offered him a rotation in office as prime minister, so could it be Prime Minister uh, Naftali Bennett coming up? I don't know. In this case, he's kind of sitting there as kingmaker between the two. He can go any which way he likes, but uh, he'll more likely he'll be more likely to negotiate with Bibi. But if Bibi is going to bring him into the coalition, he's going to owe him some serious geld, uh, or as they say in Israel, uh, major kesef. You know, kesef um, means silver uh, in Hebrew, and uh, it's kind of become a, a colloquialism for for money, cash, right? You know, Kind of like you might say, that's a lot of dough or, you know, I need some cheddar. It, just kind of common language like that. So instead of referring to uh, it, it in currency terms, like, you know, how many shkalim are you going to, you know, how many shekels? Um, we're talking about, you know, they, give me give me the kesev, you know, uh, or I'm going to make some kesev, you know. So it's going to cost him a lot to get Naftali Bennett into the coalition. Bennett is generally more free market than uh, a lot of other parties. He wants the... Uh, virus lockdown restrictions lifted and has opposed those to a certain significant degree. He also wants uh, provisions in the basic law that have to do with the Jewish character of Israel and protecting its Jewish identity. And it's uh, important to his constituents. And of course, many of his constituents are people who live in the Shomron and Yehuda, uh, these, these communities that are uh, beyond a green line drawn by the international community, uh, that they call the West Bank. 
but the reality is it's these are Israeli communities in territory controlled by Israel where Israel provides the security. So uh, this is this is ancient Jewish homeland. Well, uh, Naftali Bennett is going to be in a, a pretty strong position and his constituents are going to have a lot of the things they want. Uh, so this is this is the path now to a victory for Bibi. And as I've been mentioning, the rumors on the street are that Bibi are, is probably going to pull out a win. If he could put that coalition together, if he could put uh, Likud together with the religious Orthodox parties and the far-right religious Zionism party, and then bring in Yamina, uh, he comes to about 61, 62 seats. It's a majority. Those parties are uh, going to be more stable in sitting with him. It'll be in their best interests, having won the best coalition deal they can make with Bibi to stay in that coalition, and he might be able to go full term. More analysis on the election in the next episode. And with that, I will say goodbye. Lehi trot. Amashkatot ha yeshanot, yad inu tapuchay zah.